I'm Mary. I'm Nolan. I'm Lakita Ann. And I'm Austin. We are your hosts, and this is Your World, Your Money. We will be talking real money with real people in a real way. Because everyone deserves the opportunity and tools for freedom, financial or otherwise. Your World, Your Money is brought to you by Hanger Studios, a New York City-based recording studio, and Global Thinking Foundation, a global nonprofit working toward financial freedom and equality for all. incredible people here with us talking about one of the most important topics to our foundation, one that is near and dear to us and one that hits very close to home for many, many others out there as well. In this conversation, you have hosts, me, Mary, and Austin. Hello, everyone. Hey, Austin. And along with us, we have two incredible women, Carolyn and Pamita. So, Carolyn Bond coordinates the Economic Abuse Reference Group in Victoria, that's the state of Australia, which is a network of community organizations working to make a difference in the area of economic abuse. Carolyn has decades of experience advocating for consumer rights with a focus on credit and other financial services. She has represented the interests of consumers on a number of government bodies. And if I can say, she's kind of one of the global experts on economic abuse. So we are quite the lucky people to have her today. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. We also have Parmita Das with us. Parmita is a junior at the University of California, Berkeley, pursuing a double degree in bioengineering and economics. She hails from Bangladesh and is interested in helping improve the education, health, and socioeconomic conditions of the most vulnerable groups. And is working as assistant managing editor of Rapid Reviews COVID-19, where she is being exposed to current research across multiple disciplines, including research on the domestic abuse crisis dubbed COVID-19 shadow pandemic. Hi, everyone. I'm Pramita. Thank you so much for joining us, Pramita. So I was obviously lightly mentioning some of the research and articles that you've been publishing and working on for Berkeley and with uh, Rapid Reviews. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. First of all, what, what is economic abuse? And secondly, how that creates this, as you so brilliantly mentioned, the shadow pandemic of COVID-19. Yeah, sure. So economic abuse is a form of abuse where someone has control over the other person's access to economic resources. It is behavior in which the perpetrator controls a person's ability to acquire, use, or maintain economic resources. It diminishes the victim's capacity to support themselves and forces dependency. It is an invisible form of domestic abuse and is often associated with controlling behavior. Pamita, do you want to tell us a little bit about the article that you wrote and what you've been working on with COVID-19 and, and what has led you to call it this shadow pandemic? Mm-hmm. So as Austin and Mary were mentioning, I'm the editor-in-chief of Berkeley Economic Review. And back when I was a qualitative staff writer, I wrote an article on economic abuse. And I chose this article because I wanted to explore the human dimension of economics. How does economics shape or affect ordinary people's lived experiences and how it shapes social cultural phenomena? So this is often a dimension we don't think about when analyzing social phenomena like domestic abuse. But the truth is that economics and finance often play 
a large role in our day-to-day lives and choices. And I wanted to highlight that. And another reason I chose to talk about economic abuse is that I wanted to raise awareness about a topic that is important but is not understood at all and give people the power to do something about it. And the reason I called it a shadow pandemic is because with everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, nobody's talking about something that's also happening but behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And that is that the rise in domestic abuse cases that's like spiraling across the world. And so that's why this is happening in the shadows, so as to say. And that's why I dubbed it the shadow pandemic. Oh, fantastic. Uh, thank you for explaining that. And I definitely want us to dive into the like terminology and stuff like that. But before we dive into the logistics, I'd love for Carolyn and Austin to share kind of how you came to economic abuse. Well, yes. So my, my background's in consumer rights and really looking at um, banking and credit and all those sorts of issues. It was probably over 10 years ago now that we a number of people started saying, look, we're, we're seeing quite a few clients, mainly women, who they come in and they say, I owe all this money or I've got all this debt, but I can't even remember signing it or I signed it because mm. my partner or my husband just said to sign it and I have no idea what it was for or I didn't get yeah. any benefit from it. And about five years ago now in Australia, in Victoria, there was a, um, a, we called a Royal Commission, it was like a sort of independent inquiry about family violence and it's really increased people talking about economic abuse because it's so hard to talk about economic abuse without actually talking about domestic violence. And so I was actually asked to help some of the community organisations who all wanted to sort of have input to the inquiry and to some of the work that was being done after that inquiry, focusing on the financial aspects. And so I've been working with those community organisations since then, trying to get government and business to make changes that will improve outcomes for people experiencing economic abuse. On that note, I I would love to speak about the individual side of it and to speak about how it's recognised in the US versus Australia, you know, the work that's being done with the Royal Commission is just so much further ahead than, than what we're doing here in the US with, with economic abuse. So for both Parmita and Carolyn, what does it look like to recognize it? What are social stigmas around it? How do we help people come to this term? So, I mean, my background, I'm an actor and, and I found this foundation and was open, my eyes were open to what this looks like through the work that Global Thinking Foundation is doing. But for the average person, you know, I think we can recognize, oh, yeah, when you start explaining it, right? Oh, this is what happens when you're controlling money or finances. But what are the societal things or, or the social stigmas around it and, and how we can view that on a larger scale? I think one of the problems is that we all tend to think of money as something that's private within within the family. You know, these days I, I actually think, you know, we're more likely to talk to our friends about our sex lives than our actual money or how we deal with our finance within a relationship. Um, now, this, this is probably sort of an Anglo cultural thing as well because there's probably other cultures where money is talked about sort of without mm-hmm. more broadly within, um, you know, broadly outside the family. But here we, we don't. It's something that's really private, what we earn, how we deal with our money. I think most people will find they don't talk much to their friends about how do you and your partner decide how you spend the money. Sometimes one person says, oh, I control the money because they're the one that pays all the bills, but they might not make any decisions about it. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's 
most of the people who experience economic abuse are women. So, of course, there's a lot of the you know, background of just the gender inequality that contributes to the abuse, but also that sort of, I guess, the reluctance to talk and share about it, I think, can sort of exacerbate the problem and make people feel very alone with the abuse. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Caroline. I've been thinking about this quite a lot, like the cultural reasons why this has been going on so long without awareness. And I think it has primarily to do with the belief that private matters should not be discussed or otherwise regulated Mm -hmm. by the government, a separation of home and state, if you will. And this brings me to an important analogy that I wanted to draw. The similarities between the course of awareness for economic abuse and the course of awareness for marital rape. It wasn't until 1993 that marital rape was recognized as a crime in all 50 states. And this is because it is often invisible and often seen as belonging to the private realm. It was often seen as a compromise between partners, which silenced a lot of women who felt like they were being mistreated, but were told that this is par for the course. They had no word to point at and say that this is what is happening to me, nor were they given the social or legal recognition of their lived reality. There are so many similarities here with economic abuse where Until recently, it wasn't recognized by the law at all in the U.S. Now the term exists in the legal code in some Mm. states, and that is an important recognition afforded to victims and also sends a signal to society that this is not an acceptable compromise in any relationship. Given all this, it is important to know that in cultures where there's more social stigmatization of discussions about so-called private matters, the more there are barriers to perpetrators of economic abuse and even marital rape in parallel. I think we also need to look at this in the context of coercive control. And until recently when we talked about domestic violence, there, you know, people would say, oh, it's all about physical violence or mm-hmm. whether one partner hurts the other physically, which of course is a, is a problem. But we're starting to recognise that actual coercive control within a relationship can be even more dangerous than physical violence and have longer-term impacts. And some of the women who gave evidence to our inquiry actually said that they felt that they were suffering more long-term problems from coercive control and abuse than they were from physical violence. Coercive control means things like, you know, emotional abuse and cutting someone off from their family and their friends, uh, monitoring where they are, you know, monitoring their phone, demeaning treatment and often sort of making people Mm -hmm. feel that that they're stupid. And along with that, of you know, controlling someone financially really fits into that coercive control. And so, you know, I think it's it can be dangerous to just say, oh, gee, there's someone's experiencing economic abuse, therefore we need to do something about that, because it's likely that they're experiencing other forms of family violence. Research has shown that women experiencing economic abuse are very likely to be experiencing other forms of violence. Uh, and perhaps I should suggest if people are interested in learning more about sort of the way that domestic abuse is being looked at at the moment, there's a great book by Australian author Jess Hill, mm-hmm. just been published in the US and the UK, See What You Made Me Do, it is called. And uh, Jess is a journo who's re- talked to a lot of people, not just women, because, you know, it's mostly women, but it's not all women, about coercive control and the impact that that has. And I think it helps people better understand family violence and domestic violence and where economic abuse fits in. Mm. 
So due to the COVID-19 pandemic, 4 billion people are sheltering at home and many of them have lost their jobs and are unemployed. As a result, there may be a power dynamic change between partners, leading them to act out to re-exert control. So like the UN director said 60% of women work in informal economies worldwide, which puts them at a greater risk of poverty and creates situations where their partners can take control of their economic resources and create situations where their economic and financial independence is jeopardized. So many people right now are trapped in their homes, locked in with their abuser. Confinement is fostering tensions and strains caused by health and money worries. In fact, more and more domestic helplines and shelters across the world are reporting rising calls to their uh, domestic abuse helplines. So with that increasing amount of isolation, victims are being separated from people and resources that can help them. In some countries, resources and efforts have been diverted from violence response to immediate COVID-19 relief. And to tackle the shadow pandemic, shelters and helplines for domestic abuse victims must be considered an essential service. Increase in domestic violence must be dealt with measures such as economic support and stimulus packages that meet the gravity of the situation. Highlighting that piece, I think it would be really helpful to just kind of jump in for a second and talk about the differences between a lot of things that people might hear, because I know in the United States, we often hear financial abuse and you'll see financial abuse in legal codes, but then you'll also see economic abuse and you'll hear economic abuse. And I'm certain that there's plenty of people who are thinking, well, are they the same thing? <laughs> are they different? Does one of them apply to me and one of them doesn't? Like, how does, is one of, how does it work? And so I love that you highlighted that because I think it's so, we can take a second and just like dive into that and what people are hearing and the differences between them and how it applies to them and those differences. When I'm talking to my friends and they ask me what I work on or, you know, I'm talking to people generally, I tend to talk about financial abuse because it makes, it sort of makes more sense to people. But really where, why we use the term economic abuse is because it is not just financial. It's not just taking someone's money, stopping them from, accessing their bank accounts, but it also includes things like stopping people having access to a car or transport mm. or sabotaging them, going going to work, stopping them from study. So a lot of those sorts of things that, that economic abuse really covers a broader, a broader range. So it depends who you're talking to yeah. because if I, you know, you say to somebody, I think you're experiencing economic abuse, <laughs> they'll think you're talking about some sort of what? government economic policy. It's like, was this passed in the Senate a week ago? No, 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 no. <laughs> yes, I love that distinction. Like the the distinction between economic resources and really honing in on finances. And I really love that you mentioned that one of these is almost very scholastic and one is very colloquial. Like if we say financial abuse, pretty intuitively we can all say, oh, I have a pretty good idea what that might be. And we can almost kind of relate to it pretty quickly, right? Like when we hear that, we think, I have an idea. Maybe it happened to me. Maybe it happened to my auntie or maybe it happened to my brother, like whoever it is. We're like, oh, I think, I think I get where that's going. With that recognition, as Mary's talking about, you know, oh, I, I think that happened to my aunt or, oh, I, I thought this was happening. As we're increasing awareness, when we're seeing these signs and symptoms of economic abuse, what are things we can do as an individual? When do we say something? Who do we say it to? What are things that can be done to combat this? 
Look, I think we need to be careful with, with this because we can't just assume that economic abuse is happening just on its own. So mm-hmm. I think if we have a friend or a family member and we think that their partner or someone else is sort of controlling them financially, we probably need to gently ask some questions just to sort of work out whether there may be other forms of control as well. Often people experiencing this sort of abuse actually don't even recognise that they're experiencing Absolutely. this mm-hmm. sort of abuse. But, you know, people in this situation can sometimes face danger. Mm-hmm. We've had a case recently in um, in Australia where it appears that there was a lot of coercive control without physical violence and it ended up in, in, a, in a multiple murder. And so people are becoming more aware that sometimes these control things can really heighten risk. So I think if you're in any doubt at all, you would want to suggest to that person that they might want to contact a family violence service. Because also we've seen cases where women have sort of decided that, yes, they're going to, you know, do something about it and they might close off an account that the perpetrator has access to or something. And then that leads to violence when that person finds out. So it's it's stepping carefully, being aware of it, maybe talking to the person, but then making sure they get some expert help. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Caroline. If someone you know may potentially be uh, suffering from economic abuse, you can offer them support by expressing concern and letting them know help is available, believing them when they share these stories with you, providing practical help such as a spare room or essentials, helping them figure out an action plan, or having information about domestic abuse and economic abuse services at hand that you can provide for them. Yeah, I think there's such an important point, especially in the United States, where we have this concept that domestic violence includes all these things, but it doesn't really include, you know, economic abuse. Like that that concept isn't set yet. And so something I love that both Pamita and Carolyn have highlighted that I think is so essential is that when you potentially notice this or you know, maybe one of those little alarm bells goes off and you're like, that doesn't sound right when my friend's talking about that. Like, why does she have to tell whoever it is that she bought a $5 coffee or whatever it is? So whenever we have those little alarm bells, I love that you both mentioned believing that person and just plain and simply listening. Because to what both of you said, whether or not the person realizes that this is okay it really just is that moment where someone else is listening and believing them, whether it is, oh, well, I'm not sure if this is normal or not. In that moment, just hearing them and believing them when they say that is so important. And I love that both of you highlighted that because a lot of times I think we believe that when we have alarm bell go off, we have to get in there and fix it. We have to go find what's going on, especially if it's someone we care about, especially if it's a family member, or a friend, we're like, oh, we have to get in there and figure out what's going on. And just like Carolyn said, and Pamita, you were alluding to, it can really go down a very bad path very quickly if we don't have all the information. If we hear something that we're doing, like we're talking to ourselves and one of those little alarm bells goes off, give ourselves the space and moment to be like, hmm, is that okay? Is that quote unquote normal? If I called and talked to one of my friends, would they be worried about that? Or would they be like, oh no, that's fine. So I I think that's such an important point to highlight when we talk about just like the basic things that we can do, whether we are seeing this or hearing this for ourselves or others. It's important that 
the issue of economic abuse isn't seen as one of, you know, that needs education. It's just of people who don't understand enough about finances because we see people experiencing this from all ranges of people. Uh, I recently was contacted by someone after they heard me speak and this person was a lawyer who specialised in banking and finance law but she had actually left a an abusive relationship where there was a lot of financial abuse and he controlled all the money, tied stuff up in wow. different companies and things, and she was unable to help herself out of that. So, you know, it's good that people are educated and understand about finances, but this isn't an issue of people who just don't understand enough about finance. Thank you for highlighting. It's a very important point. Yeah. yeah, that's so, so important because we talk about all these different communities and, and included in all those different communities are people that think, well, this could never happen to me. That's a community and they're included. Like we all can be subject to this. Like, yeah, nobody wants to get into an abusive relationship. Often it starts out really well, but then signs develop or like things happen and you're trapped and you often don't know what's happening to you because you're gaslighted that this is reality and it's okay but like it's not and that's something we need to make sure people know amazing as we're talking about this on an individual level i'm curious as to what those checklists look like on a governmental level on a corporate level are there things federally you know corporately that can be done i know that's a large part of your work carolyn so i'd just be interested to hear what that looks like because you know obviously this is a large issue and i think at times it can seem larger than ourselves but, you know, who can we tap and, and what does that look like? Look, I'll talk to you a bit about what's happened in Victoria um, and a bit more around the country because quite a bit has happened since we had the inquiry in Victoria and my work focuses really on getting governments and businesses to change rather than focusing on what we do for individuals. So quite a number of community organisations some years ago, they had lawyers doing free work for people experiencing family violence, and a few of them started working very closely with either lawyers or community-free financial counsellors who sort of specialised in the finance side. And they started to see that when they were seeing people experiencing family violence, that often what made them go back to a violent relationship was that they had no access to money or that someone was controlling their money and that, that people often came out of family violence with really terrible financial circumstances, often because there was economic abuse involved. So the inquiry in Victoria heard a lot of these stories and heard actually a lot of the case studies. And so when it made over 200 recommendations, there were about 15 recommendations that focused solely on sort of economic abuse and financial issues. And our state government said that they would accept all of those recommendations. So those recommendations actually included um, encouraging banks to do more work to respond and help customers experiencing economic abuse, that water and um, to, to, for the law to be changed to make water and energy companies respond to economic abuse, to change our fines laws so that something could be done when fines were incurred by a perpetrator but in the name of like, you know, speeding fines and things like that. And so my role was really to sort of try and follow those things through and make sure those sorts of reforms happened well and to lobby or advocate on behalf of the community organisations. And so I'll give you a few examples of some of the things that have actually happened. Our fines laws in Victoria changed so that if you have a fine as a result of family violence, 
you can apply to have that fine cancelled. And the so the law was changed, but also the, the other bit that has to go hand in hand with that is that the fines department in justice here mm-hmm. actually employed some people who had some domestic violence sort of experience. And so that these applications are made. We saw a, a client recently who had $70,000 of fines because, you know, the business car that he drove was put in her name and and he never bothered paying. And she got the whole $70,000 cancelled under that program. That's a salary. That's a yearly salary. Whoa. Water companies, there are now laws in Victoria where water and energy companies all have to have processes that respond to any customers who are experiencing family violence. And there's a lot of training there for them to identify people experiencing family violence. I guess what a lot of this shows is you know, you sort of think, oh, economic abuse, how, you know, we should be educating people or how can we sort of deal with with it on that sort of individual level? Or you might think of government laws. But what we've actually shown is that laws but also changes within businesses are making a big difference. And so we're seeing, uh, we've seen tenancy laws change here so that it's much easier, you know, if if you have to cancel a lease or leave a violent situation, you don't just get lobbed with all of the, the, the debt. You can make an application. The banks have got special guidelines now. We've been working with insurance companies. We're working on credit reporting. We're even in discussions with the people who handle car registration because it's not uncommon, for example, for the family cars to all be registered in someone's name and then for someone not to be able to re-register their car because someone's sort of controlling them after they leave. Perhaps I'll just give you one example, though, of what sort of come out of some of this because the banks are doing some really great work, not just in what they do if someone says, I've experienced economic abuse, but also in looking at how they can try and be more alert to people who are experiencing economic abuse. And one of the banks started looking at the messages that were coming across when people were transferring funds in internet banking. And they came across some people who'd had dozens of abusive messages through internet banking transfers of 10 cents. What? So so if, if someone leaves a relationship and they change their phone number and change their email, the internet banking system was being used as a source of abuse. We'd heard of this. We had no idea how big it was. But because because the bank had started doing all this work with their staff, they were actually able to say, hey, look what's happening. Let's go and have do some research on this. They talked to all of the other banks and all of the banks are now looking at changing terms and conditions so that they can sort of respond to some of this. The banks have also managed to change, have the law changed so that they can open account for someone escaping a violent situation without that person having all of the documents that is normally required. So, I mean, look, we've got a long way to go. You know, it's it's, it's not, <laughs> we haven't got to Nirvana yet. <laughs> but, but but it does show that, you know, I think five years ago, someone would go, what does what can a water company do? Or what, you know, it's got nothing to do with the banks or the water companies or or whatever. But I think this shows that there can be a lot done to support people that's not just through the usual channels of helping services and governments. Absolutely, absolutely. That's incredible. These things take a long time. You know, I've I have been working in the consumer sector for, you know, nearly 30 years, I think. And 
none of these things tend to happen quickly, but often what I find is that you can work on something very, very slowly and very gradually, like a lot of people were doing before this inquiry in Victoria, Mm. and getting small, maybe very gradual changes, and then something happens and then there's a bit of an opportunity to sort of, and and things start happening and you go, oh, well, it's all happening now. And, And I think that's just say to people, if you are fighting these issues and you're trying to sort of get things changed in relation to economic abuse and domestic violence, it does take time, but your work does pay off. I'd like to add that I think one of the reasons why progress is so slow in terms for economic abuse especially is because it's invisible. It's very difficult to measure. Like I want to stress just because you can't see physical science like you can see in the case of battery does not mean it's not a valid experience. Often perpetrators will gaslight victims. So this is an important point to get across. For many people, the reason that they don't leave such abusive relationships is because, like Caroline said, their economic and financial solvency has been diminished. For many, it's an impossible choice between staying and facing maltreatment or leaving and facing poverty and homelessness in the U.S. Absolutely. And something that I was thinking of while you guys were speaking, and Pamita and Caroline, I'd love for you guys to just, you know, toss in a thought here. I think a lot about the very diverse people in the United States, the very diverse communities, the immigrant communities, the different orientation communities, all of these different people and all of these different communities. How can institutions or government, depending on which one, you know, we're working on at the time, what kind of work can they do so that anything that is passed will even potentially address those cultural barriers. Maybe not necessarily, you know, snap fingers and fix tomorrow, but maybe it's they can just start to address them because we're so diverse and there's so many different communities with those cultural barriers. I mean, I think the key thing is actually just to be aware of all of those, um, mm. the diversity and to take take that into account. But look, it's, it's an interesting issue because it's a, quite a bit of uh, discussion here about how, for example, family violence or, or economic abuse actually impacts or the experience of people from, from different communities. I think we need to do more for the same-sex relationships because there is abuse within mm-hmm. those relationships and there are some sort of services looking at that. But I think also we need to be careful that we don't actually look at people who are actually, you know, handling their money in some sort of, there's some sort of cultural practice that yeah. that Anglo background people we just don't go oh well that that must be you know that must be economic abuse um, we we certainly see a lot of people a lot of particularly women who are brought here on spousal visa where they have no family support and Absolutely. there is a lot of that can be a lot of abuse because if they leave then they can be sent back to the yeah. country. We've seen, you know, women who have come over on a spouse visa who basically are working for a family business, have no money of their own and don't have any sort of links and, and are sometimes signed up to, to, the, to the debt. So we do see some of that. But we need to be careful that just, for example, it's, you know, just because you go, oh, I think there was a dowry pay, it doesn't mean, hey, that's, that's, that's abuse. That might be a cultural practice. But, right. you know, What's our sort of, uh, our norm is joint accounts and joint accounts can be an absolute source of abuse. So I think it's making sure that we separate out what is actually abusive from, but understand different cultural practices and don't just assume that they are abusive. I know coming from a developing country, coming from Bangladesh, where people don't really talk about 
what happens inside the home or there's like this social stigmatization that acts as a barrier when you're discussing these things. Mm. That is a very big reason why these things happen behind closed doors. And so the more you encourage people to understand what's happening inside their homes and seek like help or like if they feel threatened to go talk to people about it and then get access to these resources, the more you can encourage discourse, the better it is to get help to these victims. That's so important to highlight. And I just want to second that in the queer community, there's a fear of outing, which is often a means of manipulation, which is going to reduce Mm -hmm. the likelihood of someone seeking assistance. And that, again, kind of echoes back to Carolyn speaking about that coercive control. And, you know, for trans individuals, a lot of these shelters and organizations are servicing women and, and they're limited in that way because they, you know, they don't accept trans individuals in, in those shelters. So I think, again, an awareness and recognition of what those barriers might be for these different populations and then, you know, <laughs> really working our best to, to fight those and, and counter them. So obviously these things take time, right? But if you could snap your fingers and change one thing about the way economic abuse is viewed or anything about the work that is being done, whether that be governmentally, corporately, or individually, what would that be? I have to think about this. I could start. My snap would be that we start talking about acceptable practices and relationships, what is okay and what is not. That raises awareness and encourages cultures of conversation and makes each of us better at spotting when it's happening to us and to people in our vicinity. Look, I think the, the big thing is gender inequality, but I think, Austin, you've probably, you know, you've raised it. It's not just, it's gender inequality is a big mm. cause, but then there's probably other inequalities too. Um, I guess one snap thing I would say is I really wish young people wouldn't see a joint account or a joint <laughs> loan as something that's romantic, <laughs> romantic <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, stop thinking That's so joint, real. That's so real. You know, yeah. <laughs> I love it heaven forbid when I get in a relationship well this wasn't a romantic gesture it's joint what (laughs) yeah I'd like to add like if you're in a relationship and someone is creating barriers between you and your free access to your finances where you're constantly having to ask for their permission to spend your money then that's a bad relationship like that's one of the warning signs right Thank you guys so much. Thank you for coming on and sharing with us. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Yeah, this was my pleasure. You've been listening in with Your World, Your Money. You can find us at ywympodcast.com and stay updated on Instagram at Global Thinking Foundation USA. Be sure to rate and review us and you can reach us with questions or thoughts at hi at ywympodcast.com. Our thanks again to Hangar Studios and Global Thinking Foundation. Thanks, friends. Happy money making. See you next time.